Welcome back to the PGRCast, podcast about life as a researcher. My name is Luca, I'm a doctoral candidate in civil engineering and my co-host is an excellent science communicator, Olivia Reddy. Hello, Olivia. Hi, Luca. Nice to see you again. <laughs> Likewise. Today is Valentine's Day, so it's all about love. Love for being, doing, having, love for caring and love for sharing and turning your passion into business. We are hosting no other than the godfather of this podcast, Six foot three, lightweight category with a laser focus strike, Madbone, the establisher, the founder, the initiator, the firestarter. <laughs> Hi, Matt. Hello, Luca. Hello, Olivia. Thank you. It's a very flattering intro, but I'm six foot four, so you'll have to do it all again. Ah, <laughs> there we go. Well, anyhow. I suppose, I suppose there's, there's always, always room, room for growth. Matt, thank you for making the time today and being here. Thank you, Luca. It's, uh, it's good to see you. Good to see you, Olivia. And uh, a real pleasure to be on, well, I say this side of the microphone, but on the, on the receiving end of the questions. It's, uh, it's quite different. Yeah, and I guess to get us started, would you give us a little introduction about yourself, um, what your PhD is in, and maybe a little bit why you started PGRCast? Excellent, yeah. So I did my undergraduate in chemistry at the University of Surrey and then came to Bristol in 2019 to start on a, a CDT, a Centre for Doctoral Training in Advanced Composites. So we're talking engineering and material science. And the first year of that was a, a master's that got interrupted by COVID. And then carry on from there to, to do the PhD, which I'm now due to finish sort of September this year. So it's, it's gone surprisingly quickly, um, and that's perhaps because I filled it with other things like the PGR cast. So I, from some other projects that I was doing, which we, we can go into later, I was starting to get used to interviewing people and really quite enjoying that side of things. But I was always interviewing to write articles, and I thought, why not push that a little bit further, make myself a better interviewer by caring about what I have to say and, and trying to be coherent and interesting and put it on a microphone and do a podcast. And uh, Claudia, who did season two of this, of this podcast, was one of the people I interviewed, and she suggested that we do a podcast on the sort of general PGR experience um, with a focus on Bristol and, and probably more towards engineering, but then see how we could broaden it out and, and see where it went. Tell us a bit more what did the PhD offer for your company to be created and to be run? Sure. So uh, Bristol is a very good place for startups in general. There's quite a lot of support from the, the local community and the ecosystem here is very good. Um, the university itself does quite a bit for startups. And I think probably the earliest exposure I had to it here was in my first year doing some sort of entrepreneurship week or uh, a few days because we have the, the Center for Innovation Entrepreneurship here and they like to invite in PhDs from various departments. and try and show them that there is a route to a more commercial background with your PhD and potentially taking your research and commercializing it and that sort of thing. Personally, I'd always really known I'd wanted to start a company. Both my parents have had companies, um, my dad still does. And I've always grown up seeing that and it kind of demystified what I think a lot of people are nervous about with companies where they may be worried that you're going to be spending ev all day, every day thinking about this and it's going to be a constant stress and there's a lot going on. And, and there is a lot going on. Um, I can't sugarcoat that, but there is other things going on in your life at the same time. You don't have to just be all business. So 
that sort of got me interested in business. And I thought, as I was doing my PhD, I wonder where I could pull this out and, and take what I was doing and try and commercialize it or do something interesting with it. And I got to about a year and a half to two years into the PhD. Um, and I thought, oh, actually, what I've kind of got now is very useful for me because I, I was building tools to make my research easier. And I thought, these tools are quite good now. They kind of are doing everything I want them to do. And if I wrap them up in a nice way, then it would make other people's lives easier. It would help with their research and, and sort of, it'll be a little tool, I'll, I'll put it out as a little website type thing and we'll go from there. And then the university was running a program as part of QTech, which was a department here, and still is, I believe, um, called Quest is the program. And it was essentially a six month mini MBA for PhD students working in quantum or deep tech companies. And I applied for that and, and got on to really try and learn what it meant to be a CEO. Um, and when I initially started, I was going to be a CTO and, and do all the tech side of things and, and love all the research. And then the more I got into it, I thought, actually, I quite like running a company. I quite like the leadership side of things. <laughs> I quite like being able to decide what I do and just also go out and chat with people. Because um, I think the CEO's main job is to go out and, and talk and show they have a passion and that sort of thing. And that, that's just fun. That doesn't feel like work to me now. Um, so from that, I then started the company and it sort of all ballooned from there. And what, what was quite a modest ambition to begin with is now a you know, global takeover plan and rule the world sort of 10 year strategy. <laughs> Um, <laughs> Don't make it sound Sorry. so scary. <laughs> I, shouldn't, um. I shouldn't admit to that. Shouldn't admit to that. But no, it's now 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 a lot bigger idea than it ever was before, and I'm um, increasingly happy and, and keen to see it succeed. Oh, excellent. So let's demystify. Mm -hmm. Company name is Molidin. Yep. And it was established halfway through your PhD. Again, I mean, how do you persuade your supervisor that that's a good <laughs> idea to do? Um, I guess I was always running my. Um, my supervisor team that the three supervisors and I, I was always very much running it and, and sort of taking the charge there. That's how I like to work. And I, my supervisors were very, very happy for me to do that. I'd, you know, explained what I wanted to do and I'd always go back and check with them and present what I was working on. And they were happy to just let me run with it, which I'm yeah very grateful for. Because I know a lot of supervisors can be very um, focused on how their students spend their time. And I think, I think, it depends. You, you've got to bear in mind what the student wants. I wouldn't be able to work under somebody who wanted to micromanage me. Um, so they gave me a lot of freedom. And because there was a lot of crossover between the university work and the work that I was doing for the company, it's all sort of supported each other. I mean, in terms of the work I was doing, I was working outside of hours on extending and expanding what the university work was. But as the project work, as the PhD grew, the company sort of just became more and more capable and, and started to look more like a real product that somebody might want to use. And had any of your supervisors had any experience in startups or businesses and stuff like that before? Or is that something that you then took and looked for yourself? Because obviously you've already mentioned a lot of the things that you found, but were your supervisors, I feel really mean, like any help in that? That's not what I mean. <laughs> no, um, I, I get where you're coming from. Um, I think so two of them, I don't believe have any... No, so that's, that's unfair. So two of them do have some experience working in it. They've been sort of scientific advisors on other startups coming out of other universities or, or Bristol. And they've, they, they've, two of them are sort of 
senior professors in, in chemistry and engineering, and they've seen that sort of side of the university, that spin-out side, happen before. Um, I think they were generally encouraging for me to sort of get on and see how I, see how I did, but they weren't necessarily worried about whether or not it was going to work right away or if they were going to have any involvement to begin with and, and that sort of thing. So those two senior professors are now on, as part of the company on the scientific advisory board. So I'm, I'm still working with them there, which is nice. They must think you're doing all right then. Yes, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> a reasonable amount of faith at least. <laughs> Excellent. So is that a spin-off company? So a, a university spin-out is one that has the university's direct backing and the university takes a, a percentage of the company as uh, a part of that and often allows the company access to research that was developed during university time potentially by sort of academic staff and and they then have a vested interest in seeing that company do well molly dine is not technically a university spin-out we've uh, just gone a different route the ip was all mine in the first place because it was done during my phd and so i had the option to spin out without the university and i had such a good supporting team around me and, and a a pretty good direction of where I wanted to go thanks to things like Quest and, and that sort of thing that I, I didn't feel that I needed the university directly on board. I mean, since then, I obviously have one of the professors on board as an advisor. I've uh, hired a Bristol University intern. We're going to be based in Bristol for the foreseeable future and connect with the ecosystem and everything else. I'm, I'm very keen to work with the university and I think that's what I'm sort of offering back there. And then just to touch on uh, a structure in mm. the company, right? So you, you are the sole director of the company yep. and you have advisors and what's in it for them? I mean, at some stage, once we start making some money, they'll be on a salary. Uh -huh. um, but for the meantime, I, I imagine it's that they want to see me succeed Yeah. because they've, I mean, um, Brendan, I've known for about eight years now and we're, we're quite good friends otherwise. And... He just likes the he likes what we're doing. He likes the computational side, and, and so does Ian. And they want to be a part of something that could take off and, and be a big thing within material science and, and computational chemistry, which is the, the realm we're working in. So I think it, it, there's a sort of there's a prestige and a pride element to it that means that they're enjoying working with me, and I hope that I'm easy enough to work with that it's not <laughs> it's not costing them, it's not too taxing for them. Um, but yeah, I think they. A lot of people like to support startups. I think it's a nice way to get a little bit involved and see where new directions are going without necessarily committing money or tons of time and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, we've got a very good mentor right now who's one of the former co-founders of Arm, who's incredibly knowledgeable, knows everything from, from starting a, a tech company all the way through to getting it on the London Stock Exchange and, and selling it at huge volumes to, to major sort of multinational companies and that wealth of experience just comes so it's invaluable really for, for a company like molly dine who's trying to to get started and grow into that space having that understanding from the beginning is so useful can you please say more about the ip you are and you were dealing with please yeah sure so my ip is all in my code it's all the programming that I've done as, as in part for the PhD, but then also programming around it and expanding as we've developed the company further and, and built out the capabilities. Um, Software is a difficult one for IP because it's kind of difficult to protect beyond just sort of keeping it secret. Um, 
but for in other instances if you're developing a, a physical product you might patent it um, the university might patent it and then you'd become a spin-out there's sort of various ways that you can nail down what your IP is but I think a lot of people lose sight of what they've done so you end up doing a PhD for three years and you think oh what have I actually achieved and for a complete beginner who's never seen this sort of field before you are miles ahead and you've developed all these interesting things but because you've built them up gradually you kind of lose sight of the IP that you've generated mm -hmm. and I think it's it's always good to go back and look and see oh actually yeah, this is this project's been quite productive yeah excellent and then risks company that's a huge risk startups usually don't last very long mm -hmm. you were willing to take on the risk were you stopped at any time by something that you couldn't do um. obviously not but <laughs> were, were some was there something running through your through your head in terms of oh can i read financial statements <laughs> yeah i think um there's sort of two aspects to that so in, in my head starting a company in my position is quite low risk i think beyond the the little bit of money that i've put into kickstart things I'm just committing my time and I'm learning so much that while I'm doing it that I'm not actually really, I'm not really losing very much by committing that time because at the end of the day, if the company falls on its face, I've still learned all these useful things and I've got all these extra qualifications that I can, can take out into another company. So, so in my head, it's, it's very low risk. Nobody really depends on me. I'm, I'm fortunate enough that I'm young and I can afford to live based on my PhD salary and I can just get on with this and and take that risk. To your your other point on, yeah, I think there was there's always been things that I've come up to and thought, oh, this is going to be really difficult. And I, I sort of put that weight on myself to begin with and, and make things out to be a lot bigger tasks than they necessarily are. And when I then actually sit down and, and sort of bash my head into it for maybe a couple of weeks, I go, actually, I'm quite enjoying doing this now. I'm starting to figure it out. I'm making some progress. I'm not going to be the best financial modeler ever but I've got a decent enough idea of what I'm doing I can carry on and I think as a startup you kind of need that mentality you are always going to have some part of the business or some part of the industry that you're not quite going to understand and if you can't figure it out yourself then you try and bring somebody on board who can give you a hand or you work around it or you just ignore it until it really becomes a big issue and then you go and try and fix it with what you've got at that point I think a lot of people get put off with, oh, there's oh, a barrier. Okay, I'm just going to stop. I, I've fallen at the first hurdle. And I think if you, you just keep going, keep knocking those hurdles over to continue the, uh, the analogy but, um, and just see what happens because a lot of the time they're not that big barriers and you often can just bring in people to deal with the bits you're not good at. Do you have a business plan? Are you on track? Yeah, so uh, in, a, in a formal sense, there is a business plan, it's somewhat out of date, but there's uh, quite an extensive OneNote now and, and lots of discussions I've had with people and, and yeah, it's something that needs to be on paper because um, currently it all rattles around in my brain, but because I do it every day, it's, it's kind of all there. And, and yeah, to answer your question, yeah, we're on track, which is good, it's a nice place to be. It's, uh, it's moving forward and to be honest, even surpassing my expectations. Okay, so you're on track, fantastic. And what does your company actually do? You have some chemical computation, polymers. Yeah, so... What do those mean? <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're a lot of different things in one, which is, is what keeps it interesting. I mean, we are trying to make computational chemistry more accessible to materials scientists. 
to ultimately try and develop new sustainable materials faster and that have better functionality and, and that sort of thing for, for particularly key green technologies like hydrogen storage, um, countering methane leakage, coatings for solar panels, all, all these sorts of things that are going to be key to a, a greener economy. Excellent. You've said lots of big words, which is great. <laughs> However, what does computational chemistry actually mean? Sure. So it is a way of doing chemical research through simulation. So we can distill down the, the sort of physics that determines how atoms move around and interact in such a way that we're not getting quantum accuracy for the sort of things that we're looking at. But we are getting a good idea of how, say, uh, a polymer could interact, so or a bit of plastic. What's its, say, melting point, its density, its strength, all, all these things that you have to consider when you're trying to then design a larger product or a structure. So it's kind of an underloved area of chemistry. One of the things that we're trying to do is is try and increase the awareness of it as well as make it easier for people to get involved with it. Give it some more love on Valentine's Day. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah. It definitely needs some love. It's it's a very a very interdisciplinary area of chemistry, I'd say. Like it's when you bring material science into it, you've got a chemistry, an engineering, a computer science, a physics element, or all these different backgrounds you kinda need an idea on in order to really understand the field and push it further. So it can not appeal to everybody, but as, as my background tends to be sort of jack of all trades, trying to dip my toe in all these different areas, I, I love it. Jack of all trades and master of none is oftentimes better than master of one. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone knows so, that. They can Google it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah I yeah. think in my head, it's I, I don't like being a, that master of one. I think that's, I lose my interest there. My sort of skills come from trying to combine different areas and bring in different specialities together and, and try and mesh it all together into something that works that can push maybe all of those areas forward at the same time yeah and yeah. that's again it's what keeps me interested i think it's what sort of ceos generally do is try and cover a broad area of the company that they work for and it's a nicer way for me it's it's how i want it to always work and, and being a ceo lets me do that and then as a CEO, many people think that as a 24-7 job, mm -hmm. you said that's not for you because you're doing PhD. Mm -hmm. But in the beginning, you're doing a lot of things on your own. Later on, you're responsible for employing people and their salaries. Mm -hmm. So how do you see that you are developing now to either employ people or to let go things that you can do but you shouldn't do? I've got an idea of sort of our direction of growth. And I think... In the beginning, it's really important to plan and have an idea, a realistic idea of where you want to be in, say, three months, in six months. I mean, even just where you want to be next week at the very beginning. Because otherwise, you'll get bogged down and you won't make any progress. You'll focus on too much on finding a good accountant and you'll then never actually have a product or, or anything else. So you've kind of just got to have a really good eye on what's important and when that has to be done. And then a good list of, okay, these are things I have to do in the future. You know, my to-do list is bordering on 100 items and there's things that have been on there since I started writing the to-do list a year ago. They're important, they'll get done, but they're not vital now. So you, you've got to manage your time very well, I think. It's particularly when you're one person and you're in charge of everything. Um, in terms of then how that looks when you grow, it's... 
being honest with yourself what you're good at and what you enjoy and where you think you can hire somebody to come and take over. So if you need to hire somebody who's going to cost you, you know, £100,000 a year and they're going to be super important to your business, you're going to struggle to get that person to begin with. You may have to buy them off with equity in the company or, or try and find somebody who understands your passion and, and wants to join you for that reason. Then there's more admin and business jobs that you can give to people who've been doing that their whole life and they love that area and they're good at that sort of element. So find those areas and pass them on as and when you can because as CEO, you're going to have to get rid of them and it just frees up your plate for more useful things that you can be doing. Who can you go and pitch to and try and make a sale or, or raise investment or, or concentrate on that next hire rather than getting bogged down in in the day-to-day -day business stuff. Are you looking already at the exit strategies as well at this point or not really? I, I think you've always got to as the sort of entrepreneur is it's like either you if you have an, an end in mind then you know you were able to plan towards that end better. So I think for me this is sort of a, a five to ten year endeavor. We'll hopefully be raising investment towards the end of this year and then that gets the clock ticking for when investors want to leave um, and I think within 10 years I will have done generally what I want to achieve with it which is make it a make computational chemistry a more mainstream thing make a useful tool for industry to discover some really cool materials and then try it ourselves and see what we can do developing our own materials and then potentially licensing those out and and seeing something that I've developed from a bit of code all the way through to it sitting on a desk as a as a, a product it would be really cool and that's once i've done that i think i'll be ready to sort of move on to have something to look at as a legacy as well yeah yeah exactly oh, brilliant yeah and who are your main competitors at the moment so we've got a few working in the materials modeling space mm -hmm. so schrodinger is a very big one and um, material studio again both these sort of part of companies that are particularly large mm -hmm. but they're generally catering towards a more pharmaceutical industry mm -hmm. and their focus at the moment is on experts meanwhile we're trying to stay within polymer science and that generally stays within materials um, although polymers are used all over the place in, in cosmetics and fashion and, and all these different areas um, we're, we're generally staying focused on polymers and then we are catering for, for beginners we're trying to get more people into the space so you told us a little bit about what the what the company is doing. So let me, if I'm getting it straight and I'm understanding, mm -hmm. it's the from the tools that you develop to do the work through your own PhD. It's those tools that you developed that were helping you do it that you've then improved, made better, and it's those tools which you're going to be selling as a service or access to it or yeah. something along those lines. Uh, that's right. So it's sort of it's expanded a lot more from the original idea of the tools. Mm -hmm. And it's now we're trying to wrap up this kind of simulation technology in a very accessible platform. A lot of people in material science don't have this kind of background. And we don't want them to have to spend six months to a year retraining as a computational chemist to get the benefits of simulation because people just they won't do that. Uh, at the same time, if we make it simpler to get into, we can make it easier to educate new chemists and then hopefully inspire them to move on to the cutting edge and the more complicated stuff that I that I work on as sort of my PhD. Okay and then I guess that leads into my next question which is who who is this aimed at then what who's still like clientele for your company so from what you've just said it sounds like it's 
it could be an educational platform for people who are just mm -hmm. starting off actually seeing as it as a possible future to go into um i don't know also for companies and stuff that i would be benefit from using this kind of stuff is there um i guess is there like an economic benefit to using the computational side of things instead of say physically doing things as well because i would imagine that it's much cheaper to mm -hmm. run things computationally rather than physically making building failing That's and right, doing yeah. it all over again. Absolutely. So we are we're focusing on academia to begin with and then moving into industry as we continue to sort of expand what the platform can do. And so that the platform's called Atlas and using that you can save a lot of money in your laboratory work by simulating potentially interesting materials first. What that means is you can screen a broader range of potential materials and you're doing it all virtually, which means you can do it within a week or two rather than spending months doing synthesis and organizing chemicals and that sort of thing. And because you're doing it all virtually, there's no waste. You're not using any energy to heat something up. You're not having to dispose of plastic at the end of it. So it's a more sustainable way of doing research as well as a way of trying to discover more sustainable materials. Could we model timber? Potentially, yeah. So timber is quite difficult because it's a very big structure in terms of there's a lot going on at the sort of millimeter level that determines how it has its properties. Whereas what I'm looking is at the, the angstrom level where you've got single atoms moving around. We're talking, talking one times 10 to the minus 10 meters. Mm -hmm. yeah. it's, it's very small and, and has a lot of different kinds of interaction going on. But there are aspects of timber that we could potentially model. So things like whether it uptakes water or uh, whether it has good thermal properties, that sort of thing. Nice. I was going to ask you um, to sell me your services. <laughs> um, however, I feel like you've just done that in <laughs> explaining it just then. Um, so that's great. You also mentioned um, industry and that's something that you're going to look into going into. And mm -hmm. um, obviously you're, you have an academic background, your parents have the business background, which is where you've kind of got, got that inspiration from and a bit of knowledge. Mm -hmm. um, your supervisors are in academia as well. Where does the industry part come in? Do you have links to that already? Or is that something that you're going in like, Ooh, um, let's see what happens here. <laughs> yeah, there's been an element of that, I think. So what I've been doing is having lots and lots of conversations over the last year or so with people in industry, in various industries, and seeing how different parts of their business works, what their challenges are, how their approach to and their existing chemistry works. And, and that's really filled in a lot of the gaps in terms of how might they actually use a product like this? Where does it fit in with their existing sort of development plan? Um, at the same time, doing accelerators like Quest and various other sort of courses and things that I've done has been very useful. I've had a lot of mentors who've all been very good and, and very handy to just sort of bounce ideas off of, which is how I like to work, is just inundate people with random questions and, and see what comes back. Um, so you mentioned that obviously your parents had a background in business and that something like doing a startup or going into business is something that you've always wanted to do. Mm -hmm. In that case, why did you do a degree in chemistry <laughs> instead of going to like business school or something like that? Why chemistry? Um, I think I've always, I always really enjoyed science. Um, when I was sort of picking my A-levels, it was split myself between either a law or a science degree. And I, I went with science, but then I was never very good at maths when I was at A-level. It just didn't click 
for me. Um, I couldn't use a calculator properly, seemingly. Uh, whatever I typed in didn't give the right answer. Um, so I, I thought, I'll, I'll do chemistry. I, didn't, I, I thought about law a little bit more and realized that I'd get a bit bored reading all the time for work as well as for fun and thought I'll give chemistry a try because it doesn't have much maths. And that was where I was sorely mistaken because there's whole elements of physical <laughs> chemistry where it's all maths. Um, and in fact, really, computational chemistry is all maths. So despite um, trying to avoid it... It sounds very mathsy, <laughs> even in the name. Yeah. yeah, despite trying to avoid it all, I've just ended up doing a lot of maths, but loved it. Now that I could do programming, I could deal with the fact I couldn't type on a calculator and, and could understand what I was working on a lot better. You use a big computer instead, exactly, um, exactly. instead of a small one. Yeah. Um, but you still didn't mention business in either of those things. No, really. That I, was never like as a... On your radar I did a business A-level and I thought, I enjoy this, but I don't want to just do business. I I thought I would get burnt out with that quite quickly. I kind of wanted to see a more technical side of things first, I think. And then as I got towards the end of the chemistry degree, I I did a placement year at Thames Water. And that's where I learned to program. And always be thankful for that as a nice starting point. It was very low key. I was sort of on the, in, within the first week they asked me could I program and I said no and said right we want you to learn how to program <laughs> I was like okay I'll That's give it a great, go though. and then and then loved that it was it was an awful lot of fun and as I got back to university I saw computational chemistry as a more interesting route I talked to Brendan who was my personal tutor and then ended up being my supervisor for my final year project and we came up with a more computational chemistry project that had a bit of programming in it and I thought I really loved this and I want to do research. I realized at Thames, that was where I was having fun, was doing, discovering new things. So I had to do a PhD. And then I, I knew that once I had three or four years more computational chemistry under my belt, I'd be in a position where I could actually start to maybe do this either academically as a, as a lecturer or take it and run with it as a, as a company. And, and the further I got into it, I realized I don't like writing papers. I, I don't dislike the academic world but it's just not for me and and I wanted to run an industry instead oh nice and then you mentioned obviously the chemistry background and there were different things that you were looking into from a startup perspective what other when you were looking into creating a startup mm-hmm. were you um, surrounded by other people from similar backgrounds to you were there people from different fields of research um I think, I don't know for everybody else, but at mm. least in my head, when you think of a startup, it's always something like sciencey or mathsy or something like yeah. that. Were there any like other fields um, out there for people who might be listening saying, I'm not doing a sciencey degree, but I want to go into enterprise and business. Sure. What, what could they do? I think, yeah, that if you are in a science background, there is advantages there. I think a lot of the, the classically well-known startups have come from a computer science or some sort of STEM basis. Um, and certainly the realm I was in was very much that. I was, um, with the accelerator, we were all doing deep tech and that sort of thing, which tends to get a lot of science people. And the Bristol Composites Institute, where I do my PhD, has had a number of successful spin-outs over the years. And they've all been generally engineers or chemists as backgrounds. So I, I had that sort of overview but as I got further into it I started to do more networking and met other people who are coming up with interesting products around science like potentially in healthcare but in the sort of e-commerce space in marketing in uh, ESG so caring for the environment and making sure that you're meeting your 
social um, targets and, and well, ESGs, environmental, social and corporate governance. So you've got to make sure that you are moving your company in a good direction, that you're improving your equality and your environment around you. It's the new CSR. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah, so it's... All these acronyms everywhere. Exactly. And, and seeing people then get into that space and try and bring potentially a tech element that I understood, but also a more sociological or um, philosophical background to it has been really interesting. And I guess that goes into what you've been saying about um, how you like the field that you're in because it's very interdisciplinary. That's the one. (laughs) I always find that word so difficult to say. Um, And then I guess that that makes perfect sense Mm. with all the different people that you've met and something doesn't necessarily have to be tech heavy, but Mm. it's probably going to be in there somewhere. Yeah, and I would say you're always going to face the same business challenges. So it's always trying to figure out, right, when do I actually have to do tax? When do I have to get an accountant and get some insurance and find an office? And there's all these purely business jobs that you can all relate to, regardless if I'm doing computational chemistry and somebody else is trying to distribute food on the internet. And then the question there is, do you have an accountant? Do you have (laughs) the physical space? Do you have all of these different things yet? Um. Yeah, we we started to build that up. I've got good accountants. We've got some of the, the... insurance you have to have by law and that sort of thing so we covered all of that basis still figuring out tax because that's a minefield um particularly if you try and sell overseas it's just an instant headache um and then we're taking advantage of the pandemic sort of changing the working world and everything's remote at the moment which is is a nicer an easier way to get started i think that's a nice thing for new startups is you don't need an office space for a lot of things you can just kick off and once it sort of starts a roll, then you can think, well, okay, is it worth putting us all in one place or do we stay separate and, and see how that works? And this is excellent runway for the next two questions. Mm-hmm. So you actually won the Quantex Award. Can you tell more about that? Please? Yeah, so back in October last year, we won a £25,000 prize for innovation from a, a local VC called Quantex. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Is there an applause button? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, no, no applause needed. It was it was a fun process. It was a lot of talking to different people and doing technical and commercial interviews. I, I really enjoyed talking to the people from Quantext because they cared about both sides. They didn't just care, all right, what does the business look like in terms of how much money is it making? What direction is it going? It's also, why is your technology innovative? Why is it interesting? And, and why does it matter? So is it like a techie Dragon's Den kind of process thing? Sort of, yeah. It's a lot more drawn out. It's sort of, I think it was three or maybe four interviews in the end mm-hmm. um, with various different people who've got, got different backgrounds. So you've got the, a more commercial focus and then a more technical, so it's called due diligence, checking that you are a company that has a decent future ahead of you and that you're not all just smoke and mirrors trying to find some money. Mm-hmm. Um so you go through a lot of different processes and it's a little stressful but as ceo i just you've got this passion you like talking so if people want to come and listen then fine i'll i'll come and talk at them we all love saying oh communication is the thing so how did you develop that phd students tend to be more or less introverts we yeah. quite like working on our own uh, but how do we communicate effectively or speak effectively i think it's taken me a long time to get over the sort of anxiety that i had as a kid and I've always wanted to be more extroverted, but just couldn't do it. I I was always quite shy. So 
it was just a case of putting myself out there. I had a good mentor in my uh, undergraduate who really pushed me to go and do more public speaking. And we just say, right, Matt, you're going to give a talk on LinkedIn. Um, <laughs> and I did. And I loved it. And I thought, oh, okay, this is not my specialist subject, but I can talk about this. And I, I can stand in front of a group of people and try and be interesting for 10 minutes. And once you do that a few times, you start getting over the anxiety there and then find other ways to push yourself. So for me, doing dance and doing interviews was a great way to force myself to be better at meeting people, which was always something I disliked, was introducing myself and, and, and starting a conversation. And when you're constantly trying to get people to start talking to you or start dancing with you, you've got to come say hello, say what your name is, what's your interests, you know, let, let's go from there. So you just keep putting yourself out there and pushing yourself and you get to a place where you're then a much, much better communicator. And then I think it's just being honest and truthful with people. You have to bring people into the fold when they join the company and say, look, this is what I'm going to, this is what I'm trying to do. If it all starts to look bad, I'm going to tell you. And if, it, if you don't like the way that I manage, then tell me and we can work a, a solution out together. And I think as long as you've got that almost like open door policy, people are a lot more keen to work with you. They can see that you're a genuine human being and that whilst you're not going to have all the answers, you'll hopefully move in the right direction. And then let's go back to to reality you're still a doctoral candidate yep. <laughs> you are here as the director of the company Molydine. Mm -hmm. do you have any extracurricular activities yeah it's it's a mixture of different exercise um so i do a fair bit of yoga and running when the weather's decent a fair bit of hiking i find all of those are nice sort of zone out activities that you can kind of think about whatever needs thinking about um and then i have other activities that are more engrossing so it can take you away from that so i like to read quite a bit but also i do salsa dancing and i do a fair bit of singing as a sort of just uh, that that all-encompassing hobby that means you can't do anything but think about music or or think about what you're reading and that's a nice way to just take your mind off of work great uh what have you read recently that was going to be my question what you mean uh, sorry <laughs> What did I read last? Um, Michelle Obama's first book. Really enjoyed. Um, so I'd read uh, Barack Obama's more recent memoir and then the first book that he wrote, and they were both very good in terms of the politics and, and seeing like what that route looks like and how he's done it. But hers was really interesting because she's got this background where she doesn't really like politics, yet has been front and center in it for so long and has overcome so much to put herself there that it's really interesting to see how, how somebody goes about motivating themselves to do that and still achieve huge successes during that time, despite not, not overly loving the, the whole community that sort of surrounds a, a political role. Yeah, I would completely agree with that for that, that book as well. I've just started reading her second book oh, now excellent. and it's just as great. Yeah. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to put it out there. <laughs> she's, um, she's a better writer than he is. Um, <laughs> He, he does, yeah, he does waffle a little lot. A little bit. A little bit, but <laughs> there's some good bits in there. <laughs> okay, so we've been on a big, long journey through your PhD, how you got to where you are and starting your startup and your business to where you are today. Mm -hmm. What advice would you give to a PhD student who is 
I don't know, the beginning of their degree, but really likes business um, or going towards the end and they've got kind of a spark of an idea that they think they could take somewhere else. Mm -hmm. What advice and what would be your top three things, I say, to give to those students who want to start their own business or a startup? I would say that the first is to start getting the idea out there. You're, you're going to feel like if you mention this, somebody's going to insult this beautiful little idea that you've got or they're going to steal it and you'll never get it done. And the honest answer is that that doesn't happen really. If you are working as a PhD, you're probably the leading expert in this very small area. And if you tell somebody exactly how to do your idea, they still won't be able to copy you. So start putting it out in front of business people, in industry, to friends and family and just see what the reception is because that's where your idea will grow and start to form into something that could actually be done. You, you'll learn an awful lot quicker by just having one conversation than spending weeks trying to think about the problem. So yeah, number one is get out there and start talking. And at the same time, start trying to educate yourself on the business side of things. You don't need to go in and be CEO or, or even CTO or anything. You can just find a group of people who share your passion, who want to explore your idea, and then you'll find your natural fit within the company. And it may end up being something that you didn't really think would be the, the place you'd end up in. So you need a little bit of, of business knowledge to, to get you there. But once you've got that, you can start to build a team around you and fill in your, your skill gaps. And, and again, start to have the company solidify as an idea around your new, or your new plan for a product or a service. And then third, I think it's just consider what your alternatives are. And, and if the company goes wrong, you've got a PhD. You are an expert in a very small area. And now you've added on all this extra company knowledge and, and can run a, a commercial idea forward a lot more effectively than the people around you who've never tried before. So really, the risk that you're taking in giving it a go is quite low. Because if it all fails you are so well qualified and you will be in such high demand that you'll be able to go on, find another company to, to keep you tiding over and then see about going back into entrepreneurship when you've got a bit more experience and another great idea. Excellent. Thank you very much uh, for this fruitful conversation. Thank you. It's been a real um, pleasure. Thanks, Olivia. No worries. <laughs> so, yeah, thanks for sharing the PGR experience. And uh, I'm sure, as uh, all other guests, uh, you have inspired others to take some action to look into should they go into business while they're doing PhD <laughs> or later on. Yeah, give um, it a go. <laughs> yeah. Especially if it's something that you love. Yes, yeah, that's the main <laughs> thing always. Get that passion there. Yeah. <laughs> Today's episode was brought to you by the wider PGR cast team. Produced and edited by myself, Luca, co-hosted by Olivia, and mixed by Michael Rambelow. Rory, in short, you're able to listen it online. PGR cast episodes are available at soundcloud.com forward slash PGRcast and on iTunes. We hope you enjoyed this episode and press play again soon. If you think you can do better, have a request, or want to be part of the PGR cast team, send us an email to pgrcast.podcast at gmail.com. At the end of February, Rory, Olivia, and Lou will be back with another great episode.